0: By Anonymous. This story is published in the late 1700s in England, when religion was an important aspect of the lives of the people that lived there. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest so they can have a productive day and achieve what it is they need to achieve. I will read you a different story every episode to help you doze off. My mission is to keep bringing this podcast out to people everywhere who need a good night's rest. I know it's helping a lot of people get the rest they need, and I'm grateful to be able to help you do this. I want to say a special thank you to iTunes listener, Miss Q2U, for this lovely review you left on iTunes. I also received a new patron during the week on Patreon, Caroline Morton. Your financial contribution to my podcast meant so much to me and will allow me to keep bringing out more episodes to you. Thank you. My passion is to bring out this podcast so that people can get the sleep they need. If the podcast is helping you, I'd love for you to become a sponsor or patron which you can do at boyyoutosleep.com. Your financial contribution really does help me keep the podcast on air and help me bring out more episodes. I'd also love if you're able to subscribe, leave a review and rating. All of these things do help me Keep the podcast alive so that people everywhere can get the good night's rest that they deserve. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. The Story of a Peninsular Veteran Chapter 1 I have the advantage of being an Irishman. My parents had also the felicity of first seeing the light of day, as it shone upon the soil of the land which for ages has seemed to possess such passing interest in the eyes of Britain. Their family consisted of six children, four boys and two girls, I was the youngest of the whole, and for reasons I do not profess to comprehend, was a special favourite. I was named Thomas, which, interpreted by parental love, was converted into Benjamin with a double portion of all that substance so scanty as theirs could supply. I was born in the small townsland of Enneham, Kings County, in the province of Leinster, about the year 1790, be the same a little earlier or later. The exact period I cannot specify, as at that time and place... And in consequence of the culpable negligence generally prevalent in parochial registration, very little thought or care was shown in recording such events. Those were the days of intestine broil and vengeance, the seeds of rebellion which had been sown with an unsparing and remorseless hand, were just ready to produce their baneful first fruit. Such was the jeopardy in which Protestants especially were placed, that no one who beheld the morning sun arise could safely calculate upon seeing it go down. Domestic fury and fierce civil strife, kindled and mainly maintained by papal cubidity and violence, raged through the fairest portions of the country. No one had the courage to trust his neighbours for no one could tell who was worthy of trust. Mutual confidence based upon moral principle, which alone can cement society, was blotted from the list of social virtues. Not many dared depend even upon former friends, the ties of relationship and those arising from nearness of kin were frequently forgotten. Natural affection, usually invincible, was unheeded, and under cover of night or even in open day, the unwary traveller became frequently a prey to instantaneous death from the bullet of some skulking assassin concealed behind the roadside bush or brake. My parents, I regret to state, were Roman Catholics. They knew no better, for no other teaching had reached their minds. Their membership with that fallen community was their misfortune rather than their fault. I believe the profession they made was sincere, and that, though mingled with the dross of popish superstition, they were possessors of at least some few grains of sterling piety. My mother, in particular, was remarkably constant and fervid in her devotions, and the earnest manner in which her beads were counted, though I could never detect the meritorious points of calculation, is to be numbered among the earliest and most powerful impressions I ever received. My father had for several years acted as steward to Archibald Nevin's Esquire, a gentleman who, at the time, was the owner of considerable estates in the vicinity of Port Arlington. Ours was a happy family, my father though a plain man, was excelled by few in attachment to his wife and children. Hope springs eternal in the human breast, and we flattered ourselves that futurity offered to our notice lengthened years of comfort. But we soon found that our hold on earthly happiness was fragile as the spider's thread. My father was taken ill and passed away. Even now the procession of his funeral is pictured on my memory. The gentleman, already named as my father's employer, had fallen upon evil days. His property passed into other hands, and as the purchaser knew nothing of our family... No one cared for the widow and her orphan charge. A house with every needful convenience had been built for us by the original proprietor. This we were abruptly ordered to quit. Another king had arisen. Who knew not Joseph or his father's house? We went away weeping at every step, I saw my mother's tears and to this day her low wailing strikes my ear, but though destitute we were not forsaken, though in straits we did not perish and by the blessing of almighty providence upon the well-directed industry of my mother and my elder brothers, we were sustained with food convenient. The desolate condition of the moneyless and unprotected widow was aggravated in no common degree by the political commotion already adverted to. Persons unacquainted with the approaching terrors of that era may imagine that an obscure and uninfluential family like ours had little to apprehend that our poverty was protection enough and that those who had nothing to lose had nothing to fear. This was not so. The conflict then impending arose from the dark designs of men, cursed with a heart unknowing how to yield, and who were bent on havoc and rapine. Personal robbery might not be planned, but when many were ready for that and a great deal more, hearsay and sedition were closely in league, the emissaries of each were in ceaseless motion, and the ultimate design was to burst forth from the unsuspected places of mischief. Suddenly and wide-wasting, As the simoon of the desert and sweep with indiscriminating ire from the abodes of their peaceful countrymen, every vestige of existing government and every temple devoted to the reformed religion has by law and right reason established perfect secrecy on the part of the rebels was happily attainable, every now and then circumstances and facts transpired, the tendency of which could not be mistaken, Hair-brained but hot-headed men became the self-elected orators of secluded nocturnal assemblies, liberty and equality, and reason versus religion, neat as imported from the French directory at Paris, was the order of the day. Uproarious vociferation took the place of argument, and though the majority of these Hibernian gentry were as ignorant of jurisprudence as the more modern destructionist, nothing less than the dismemberment of the British Empire and the establishment of a republic, formed probably on the model of citizen Robespierre, would suit their purpose. All this was designed and most of it was divulged. Experience has shown that when numerous and unequally gifted agencies are employed, let the pursuit be good or evil. Entire privacy is next to impossible. The parties may promise to be silent or may bind themselves to be so by oath. But concealed knowledge is a treasure, of which the custody is to some communicative souls impracticable. They find themselves in the possession of a secret. It struggles to break away, but they remember their vow and in order to hold it fast, they get a friend or two to help them. The sons of Irish Misrule assumed several names. There were white boys and steel boys, oak boys and right boys. Distinctions are, however, needless. They were all bad boys and at length the entire series were drawn into the wild and powerful vortex of united Irishmen, It being understood that this body consisted chiefly of persons professing the Roman Catholic religion. The storm at length came down And the consequences were awful. Although not quite nine years of age when our neighborhood rang with war's alarms, the scenes I was then compelled to witness cannot be forgotten. I distinctly remember the transactions of an eventful day, which took place in a small town near my mother's residence. The rebels had taken possession of the place and had murdered a magistrate who attempted to oppose them. At that crisis, a squadron of dragoons stationed at Tullamore received orders to march and endeavour to dislodge them. The cavalry rode into the main street with great gallantry, but were received by a tremendous fire of musketry from the windows of houses on each side, so that after sustaining a considerable loss, they were compelled to retreat. Several of the soldiers were killed and a number of wounded men were afterwards conveyed on cars from the place of action to the military hospital. My poor mother was in the midst of these dangers, and I well remember that she experienced great rudeness from the ruffian rabble, but the Almighty preserved her from serious injury he can restrain at pleasure the wrath of man as well as divert it into a new and unintended channel. That night we were afraid of entering into any house lest we should attract the notice of the rebels who were now flushed into insolence and inebriety by their recent victory we therefore crept behind the foliage of some low trees and passed the night in the open air. Our next precaution was to protect the little remaining household furniture from pillage. To effect this, we buried the most valuable articles in the earth as nothing above ground appeared to offer the least protection. The property thus secreted was saved, but on raising it subsequently, almost everything was spoiled by the dampness of the soil in which it had been embedded. One of my neighbours, John Tinkler, was singled out by these barbarians as a victim. He was a man of singular benevolence and held in general esteem by the surrounding inhabitants. But he was a Protestant, and that had been long placed at the head of the list of unpardonable crimes. The house of this worthy man, whom I knew well, was beset by a horde of armed ruffians who commenced an immediate attack. Tinkler, in the midst of his family, consisting of a wife and seven or eight children, though surprised, determined to defend himself to the last extremity, he fought desperately, though oppressed by numbers, until one of the villains posted outside the house and, guided by the sound of his voice, deliberately levelled his piece and fired. The bullet passed through the door and struck Tinkler, who fell dead just within the threshold valiantly defending his home and property, and I regret to add that the widow and her helpless charge, ejected by some means from the farm and land, were obliged to seek shelter elsewhere. These were but the beginning of sorrows, the spirit of ruinous anarchy spread far and wide. It was particularly observed that the Roman Catholics were very much devoted to their chapels. Mass was celebrated every day throughout most parts of the country, whereas formerly it was chiefly observed only on the Sabbath day The chapel of Balacanu was attended by a very numerous congregation at both morning and evening prayers. Michael Murphy was officiating priest of that parish, a young man strongly made and of dark complexion, who had been a few years resident in the place and not long in holy orders. This person was master of profound dissimulation, and contrived to throw around himself the garb of saintly innocence, at the very moment in which he was preparing to smite with the sword. The military saint actually took the oath of allegiance, in which he expressly declared himself ready to be true and faithful to his majesty King George III and to the succession of his family to the throne and that he would prevent tumult and disorder by every means within his reach and give up all sorts of arms with his possession. All the above, quoth Michael, I swear, so help me God and my Redeemer. Meantime, in the vicinity and all around the residence of his reverence, timber was missing out of the gentleman's nurseries, It was observed that the woods and shrubberies were gleaned of such materials as would suit for the construction of offensive weapons. In fact, this genuine sample of popish fidelity, who, had he lived, ought to have been rewarded with at least a cardinal's hat, This pretended pattern of all that is good and praiseworthy went his way from the altar, put down the testament on which after the preparation of his delusive affidavit, his lips had been pressed and straightway began to exemplify the inviolability of his oath to existing government but the manufacture of pie candles and granting absolution to those who helped him. Without going into the history of the Irish Rebellion, which is foreign from my present purpose, the fact is sufficiently evident that the whole of that sanguinary struggle from first to last, may be ascribed to the crafty domination of the Roman Catholic clergy. It is not a little singular that three of the most daring military leaders, those, I mean, who were principally signalized in the wholesale butchery of their Protestant fellow subjects, were priests in that persecuting church. One of these, named Roach, assumed the power of working miracles. Indeed, each of them, as occasion required, did a little business in that line. Roach declared that in battle his person was invulnerable, that no shot could hit or hurt him and having picked up several bullets after an engagement at Ras he assured his dupes that he caught them in his hand during the fight the wily ecclesiastic true worshipper as he was at the shrine of Mammon conceived the idea of turning the thing to good account by the alternate practice of hypocrisy and theft, for either of which his hand was ready. He succeeded, and I hardly know which to admire most, the consummate impudence of the Holy Father, or the folly of his disciples, Roach procured slips of paper, each of which he termed a protection or gospel. In the centre was a figure of the cross, with an inscription underneath stating, In the name of God and of the Blessed Virgin, no gun." pistol, sword or any other offensive weapon can hurt or otherwise injure the person who has this paper in his possession and it is earnestly recommended to all women to carry it as it will be found an infallible preservation against the fatality of of child bed anxious to secure customers in every rank the price of these tickets to the better sort of people was half a crown as the poor might haggle at parting with a coin so large the vendor discreetly condescended to open a retail trade at sixpence each The circulation of this trumpery, the value of which was equal to every other product of the Catholic Church, was immense. Customers were to be computed by thousands. Friar Murphy had already been noticed. His career, as has been related commenced with daring perjury, and as the progress and end of such a man may be instructive, he shall have a parting glance. Like his inquiring associate, he was disposed to do the wonderful. His campaign, however with those of many other villains, was way soon over. Bloody and deceitful men do not live out half their days. It was at the Battle of Arclo in 1798 that Commander Murphy determined by a decisive movement to blast the hopes of the Protestant cause. On the morning of the 9th of June, the rebel army was observed amounting to 34,000 men with three pieces of artillery advancing on the town Had this formidable force arrived only two days earlier it would in all probability have captured the place but providentially reinforcements had been procured from Dublin so that the garrison amounted in the whole to 1500 men under the command of Major General Needham Arklo, considered as a military position, presented no point susceptible of advantageous defense, and was altogether open and unprotected. About two o'clock p.m., advice was received that the enemy was approaching. This was so little credited to the garrison which had been ordered under arms was just to go to be dismissed when a dragoon came galloping into the town with intelligence that the rebels were now at hand. The drums instantly beat to arms The troops flew to their respective stations, and preparations were made to give the enemy a proper reception. Having advanced to the suburbs of the town, the rebels set fire to several buildings in hope that the smoke would annoy the garrison and confuse their operations. Just then the wind shifted to the opposite quarter, so that the scheme not only failed, but served to confound their own devices. The action commenced between a column of the rebels and a detachment of the Dunbarton Fencibles who were ordered out to line the ditches on each side of the road. When they had exchanged about a dozen rounds, the fencibles received orders to retreat, which was performed but with a little confusion. On perceiving this movement the rebels pursued with loud huzzas, and one of their officers, waving his hat, called out, Come on, my boys, this is our town. That was an error. He was suddenly surrounded by the troops. His horse was shot and himself wounded, on which he fell as though slain, In a little time curiosity constrained him to lift up his head and look about. When he was perceived and shot dead, the rebels pressed on with obstinacy, worthy of a better cause. But on receiving a close fire of musketry and grape shot, they fell back to some distance. They then endeavoured to extend their line in order to turn the left flank, but the fire of the Cavan battalion was so severe that the attempt was abortive. Another column of the rebels tried to gain the lower end of the town by the beach, but here they were repulsed by a desperate charge of cavalry, headed by Colonel Sir Watkin-Wynne. They then proceeded in great force to a passage that led to the centre of the town, which was defended only by a sergeant and twelve privates. This handful of men, however, made good their position and, as the pass they held was narrow, rendered every effort to dislodge them from it ineffectual. At this critical juncture, Priest Murphy appeared, animating his men to renewed acts of outrage, were driven before him, to the thickest of the fray. As no new deception presented itself, he had recourse to the worn-out pretension of working miracles. He declared, like Brother Roach, that he could catch the bullets or ward them off at pleasure in proof of which he had advanced at the head of a strong party in order to take a cannon stationed near a barrack. In that moment his bowels were torn out with a canister shot. The rebels on observing him fall fled with precipitation, swearing the priest himself was down. On that day, a thousand rebels fell. Their retreat, as might be expected, was marked by dreadful excesses. They broke the windows of churches and other places consecrated to divine service. They had an intolerable hatred to Protestant prayer books and tore to pieces all that came within their reach. They carried the leaves of the church Bible on their pikes, shouting, Behold the French Colours, and to complete their impiety, they put two Protestants to death in the aisle of a church. In other parts, they made saddles of the Bibles, and rode about upon them. The retrospect of these vengeful days, while it serves to fix my faith in true religion, as contrasted with that which is false, calls forth unfeigned gratitude to God for his protecting mercy. Exposed as my mother and family were to the pelting of the pitiless hurricane, none of the sustained material caused us personal injury. I have before stated that my mother was conscientiously attached to the tenets, such as they are of the Church of Rome, I never observed anything reprehensible in her conduct though no one was more constant than she was at the confessional. Neither know I to which of the saints she was disposed on emergency to turn that she loved the Saviour and was willing to wash the feet of the servants of her Lord, I can safely affirm. I can vouch for the constancy and zeal of her private prayers and intercessions. I know that the practices of her life agreed with the engagements of her lips, and I cannot help but think that she was a noble proof that God is no respecter of persons, that holiness of my heart may subsist in the most defective dispensation, and that whoever seeks the face of God, through the merits of his Son, in the path of penitence and faith, even though cumbered with mistaken doctrinal views, shall not be cast away. The time, the extent and the unwitting nature of her ignorance God winked at, he saw that she erred through ignorance. The eye of his ominence pierced through the veil of her mental delusion to the uprightness of intention that dwelt within him. And I believe through divine mercy, she went down to her grave justified by grace, hallowed and made meet for heaven, agreeably with the religious views which my mother had entertained she endeavoured to teach me the principles of papacy. I was moreover frequently taken to Mass, but being young and heedless, one system of religion was to me as good as another. In other words, I was careless respecting them at all. Indeed, I have reason to believe that my indifference in this respect was to my mother a source of great grief. Meantime, I had arrived at the fourteenth year of my age, a period, generally speaking, of no small vanity and self-complacency and in which many men think themselves qualified by the dignity of their teens to shake off the trammels of parental guidance. Among others I determined to walk alone, but unfortunately on reflection boast of my first step Among the youths with whom I contracted some acquaintance was a dissolute lad about my own age, by whose enticement, when only just turned 15, I enlisted in the Queen's County Militia. Not that my conduct, like his, had been openly immoral, yet he had gained over me an ascendancy I could not resist. Evil communications corrupt good manners, and perhaps the apparent freedom, the frankness and gaiety of an open-hearted soldier's holiday life, had an influence which, though not acknowledged, was really felt... But, oh, my mother, for when I became a soldier, she was still living. I had in this deed of hardihood well nigh forgotten her. But she remembered me, and when I thought thereon, I wept. Never shall I forget her last, her parting look, my elder brother had settled at some distance and on the eve of my departure to share in unknown danger had unexpectedly arrived. If bereaved of her children, she was bereaved and I know she said in her heart, all these things are against me Her farewell was accompanied with a prayer for my future prosperity, and I impute my preservation under providence. On leaving her presence on this eventful occasion, I was taken before Captain Fitzmaurice, the officer in command at the recruiting station and was kindly received. He expressed himself pleased with my look and healthy appearance, made several inquiries relative to my family, and at once engaged me as his servant. After serving in the Corps about 12 months, I received principally, I believe on account of my youth and honourable discharge, while the regiment was stationed at the Castle Barrack in Limerick, and returned to the quietude of home. I hope you enjoyed that story. That concludes the end of tonight's readings. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode for another good night's rest. Until then, good night.